we'll try that again. Good morning. morning. It's much better. You're getting better. Brilliant. Um, I'd love you to have your Bibles open, guys, if you would, please, at Revelation. We're going to start in chapter 1 this morning, um, very briefly, and then go on to chapter 2 and 3. So just uh, come with me, if you would, to chapter 2, chapter 1, I'm sorry, and verse 9. You all got that. Brilliant. Now, I didn't really explain last night, terribly clearly, I don't think, about uh, who this guy is, John. And uh, John actually is, is someone uh, I'm sure you all know about anyway. But John, of course, started life uh, as a fisherman. He's one of the sons of Zebedee, who was by the side of the Sea of Galilee. One or two people dispute that authorship, but generally speaking, most people think Revelation was written. Uh, and the guy who got the vision uh, was John, and he was one of those two fishermen who used to go out fishing on Galilee. And uh, one day Jesus came along and said, uh, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That, that's the John that we're talking about here. But when you look at it, please, very clearly with me, so you know a little bit more about this guy. I, John, see how he describes himself, verse 9, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. This guy was clearly there because we looked at last night the suffering that was being caused to Christians under the control, as it were, of the Emperor Domitian who was seeking in that period. And we reckon the period roughly that the book was written in, most people think about AD 95, and therefore it's the the last book of the New Testament, very much the last one. And it's under this period. In fact, John was probably released from Patmos, the island on which it was a kind of Roman penal colony that he was in, and around 96, after Domitian had died, uh, he was released and, and went back to his church, probably in Ephesus, but that's a bit of speculation. Um, but look what he says, on the island of Patmos, because of, verse 9 at the end, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That's the reason he suffered. Because he was not ashamed of the word of God and he was not afraid to give testimony to Jesus. And that's the reason that he was suffering. For no other reason. He hadn't committed any crime. He hadn't done anything wicked. He hadn't done anything evil under Roman law. Except to challenge the fact that Domitian, who loved to be known, if you remember last night, as God, he was challenging that. And he's saying there is only one true God. And that's the God of heaven and earth who made the heavens and the earth and whose son was Jesus Christ who died for our sin. He stood up and said that and that caused him the grief. And that's what chucked him onto this crummy rocky island. It's not like the tourist place it is today. Uh, it was just a rotten island in the middle of nowhere. And you got dumped there if you were a Christian. Uh, and that's something which I think we need to know. Now, that moves us on from this wonderful... There's still some sheets, by the way. One or two others I'll tell you about later. If you want this picture of Jesus, this wonderful picture of Jesus that we had in 13 uh, through, through to 16 there, this beautiful picture of who Jesus is. Um, I well remember um, somebody who maybe most of you don't know, but was a curate in, uh, in Forward when I was serving there, a guy called Gavin McGrath. He uh, was a good friend of mine, and uh, we were talking one day in a staff meeting at Forward up at the vicarage there. Uh, and he said, uh, I said something to him about, we we're going on a house party, he said, we're going to talk about Jesus. And Gavin, as sharp as ever, said, which Jesus? Which Jesus? And I would ask you the same question, which Jesus? Have you got the cuddly version? Have you got the gentle Jesus, meek and mild version? Have you got the kind of Christmas card version, you know, the, the glossy thing with all the stars and the angels and pretty bits? 
Or have you got the Jesus that demands complete and utter obedience to his lordship? Which Jesus are you following? And that's the Jesus that, as it were, is at the head of the church that we're going to look at. And if you just, again, you can see that these church names are mentioned uh, at the end of verse 11. Right on a scroll, what you see, John was receiving this vision of, of Jesus and send it to these seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And I bet you're glad I pronounced all that lot, and not you. Now, where were these churches? There they are. Now, there's a map. It's very interesting. If I can just pop across here, uh, if I may, just and wave at screens and things. Um, Here's the wonderful Aegean Sea, where you all go on holiday. Here's Patmos, stuck out in the middle. And if you trace these churches... Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. They go around in a kind of circle. Um, And that raises kinds of questions of interpretation. They're they're in Asia Minor, what we now call Turkey, um, near where many of us go. Bodrum, for example, is on that peninsula right near the bottom there. That's Rhodes that's sticking up. That lowest bit is Rhodes. A lot of people go there. It's a beautiful place. Um, But that's not the point. After this incredible opening chapter, John's response to the stress of of being a Christian was quite simply, in amongst all these churches that existed around that circle, was to point people to the risen Jesus. Is he directing them simply to Jesus as a kind of hero figure? Is it just someone who thinks, oh, he's a great guy, let's just look at him and see what he's like? No, He's directing them to Jesus quite simply because he holds their future. Do you remember that line last night? I have the keys of death and Hades. I have control of this world. And so John is saying that in this period of persecution, when you're under the cosh, when you're under the hammer, and you're one of these churches that had been established earlier, they'd probably most of them been around about 40 years and they'd been established as church communities, people were worshipping there, and as Domitian sort of spread this nastiness around about who Christians were, these guys were beginning to come under all kinds of pressures. And they were all sorts of things. And probably you've got, I don't know, you've probably got ambitions, you've got aims, you know, what will I achieve? Where will I work? Will I make a difference in the world? Will I achieve things? Will I do stuff? Will I get married? Will I have kids? All that kind of stuff. When I was your age, that's exactly how I felt. But ultimately, if you're faced with persecution, possibly enforced unemployment, maybe physical torture, social pressure to worship local gods, and the pressure is because of your faith in Jesus... John says, turn to Jesus because you're safe in his hands. He has your future secure. Nothing else does. Friends come and melt away. Relationships come and go. Your job may get chopped from under you. I'm dealing at the moment with a guy in my church whose job was just completely finished, just like that. I met a guy once in uh, a roundabout. I don't meet many guys in roundabouts, but... This was a particular guy. I walked out of Waterloo Station 
uh, where I often do because I live down that way and I walked out and there was this big sort of underground roundabout thing and I walked over this guy and he looked a bit down and out and for some reason I just stopped and spoke to him. And the first thing he said to me was, I used to work over there. And I thought, what's he talking about, you know? What's he on about? And I thought it was just the building across the roundabout. He, said, he was pointing to the city of London. And he was now living in a box which used to contain a hot point deep freeze in a roundabout outside Waterloo Station. And his world had collapsed because somebody said, clear your desk, get out now. You see, friends, you don't know what's going to hit you. You don't know what's going to come. I was only this last month in a, in a house with a couple, desperate to have children. And where they'd had a child and that child had died. You know, and you weep with those that weep, don't you? You never know. In my job, I, I visit people. I buried a lady who was 36 years old. A beautiful woman in every way. One of the leaders of our Sunday school. And yeah, I, I guess most of us will expect to have a, a kind of, you know, a year, or that year, and then that year, and then we'll get to 80, you know, and everything will be great. But it doesn't always happen. And tragedy bites. And when you've got a lion coming at you and all you've got is half a footy goal to deal with him, you need to know where your security lies. And can I tell you, as, the, as I was brutally reminded by somebody last night, I can't remember who it was, that I am the oldest person here, uh, which I thought was very cruel, but there you go. Um, I, let me tell you that after being a Christian... Since I became a Christian as a student when I was 19 or 20, I can't remember which now, my only security that really lasts is my security in Jesus. Because I have no other that's worth having. And so we need to, as a church, as a group of God's people gathered here this morning, part of his church at Christ Church Forward, a church which I loved and loved being in for 17 years, I just want you to know that as a church, our only security is our hope in Jesus. It, it isn't in the vicar, it isn't in the youth worker, it isn't in anybody who works on the staff, it isn't in the fact that we're a famous church. You are a famous church, but that's not your security. Your security is the living Jesus that John is trying to convey to you in this, in this letter. And a few background bits. Why, why seven churches? Because we know that in that patch, there were at least ten. We know that from archaeological digs and stuff like that. We know there were ten. Well, seven. We'll do numerology, numbers and stuff later on in the week. Um, but whenever there's seven, that's always complete. That's always wholeness. That's everything. It's, it's a seven. It's a nice rounded number. And so these letters talk to the seven churches... That image is the whole of the church, including us today. It included all the churches in Asia Minor, all ten of them and maybe more. There's only actually one left, and that's in Smyrna. It's now called Izmir, where there was an earthquake a few years ago. Uh, that's the only church of those seven that's left today. Sad, isn't it? But that's the truth of what it's like to be in Turkey. And, and all these churches um, that have ever existed need to hear this word to the church 
in chapters 2 and 3. What I'm going to try and do is pick on the, the first and the last and go through the structure. And if you want the whole structure and all the bits, there's a sheet here for you. If you want a map of the seven churches, I've even done that for you. Aren't I kind? And uh, you're very welcome to take that away with you so you can look at it. Now, let's look at the structure. First of all, there's an address. Look at that in chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church. Now, somebody asked me about this last night, what that's about. Uh, Is there sort of somebody in the church, you know, doing this and looking gorgeous and angeled and winged and all that sort of rubbish? Um, No, it's either one of two things. It's either the leader of the church or the letters start this way, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. It's more likely to be this. Follow this with me, if you will. This is a bit visual, this bit. So here's the church, okay? There you are, there. There's the church. There's God up there. Now, the angel, probably, the way John is writing this, is someone here, an angel, in the court of heaven, as it were, who's saying, there's the church that I, as it were, represent to God. So there is an angel, and he needs to be a big one for you lot in Christ Church Forward, but he's there, and he's representing, as it were, to God, what Christ Church Forward is all about. To the angel of the church. That means that God knows exactly all there is to know about the youth group at Christ Church. And he passionately cares about it. Because there is this angel of the church. And uh, that, that reminds me actually that um, our true home is not on the earth, is it? Do you know that lovely old Negro spiritual, this this earth is not my home or something, I'm just a passing through. My home is not here. Your home is not here. If you're a Christian here this morning, your home's in heaven. And that's what you're bound for. That's what it's about. And that angel will speak for you. Now if you go on to the the last letter, the third in chapter 3, you get it the same, you see, the angel of the church in Laodicea. And all the letters, if you just scan your way back through them, if you've got them labelled in your Bible, you'll see that they all talk about that, to the angel of the church. Secondly, there's a description of the author, Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, back there please with me. These are the words who him of holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, we've heard that before. We heard that last night in chapter 1. And here is Jesus, who is in the middle. He holds the seven stars, the churches, in his right hand. I think this is a brilliant picture, actually. I love this. The idea that in his hand, Jesus holds us. His children, us, the believers in him. He's the the one who cares about us. He holds us and he walks among us. The place where the light should shine from, the lampstands, there is Jesus walking in amongst us as his children. And and I think that's lovely. There's nothing Jesus doesn't know about us. Some of us try to con Jesus, don't we? We, we kind of think we can have a, a double life. We can have a sort of life over here, which is very Christian, you know, and very upright, and very wonderful, and very pure. Uh, and over here, there's another bit of our life that we think we can hide. What a load of rubbish that is. Don't con yourself that Jesus doesn't know everything there is to know about you, and still loves you. That's the miracle. 
And so in, his, in the last letter, Jesus is described, look at it, you, you're going to keep flipping backwards and forwards, but it'll do you good, keep your fingers warmed up. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. The faithful and true witness, the one whose word can be trusted. That's what it's saying, the Amen, the one who says at the end, that's it, that's true. One whose word, the ruler of God's creation. So just pause a bit, put those two together, what have you got? You've got a God who's saying, the God who's speaking through his son, Jesus Christ, is completely in control, he's the sovereign God, he's the source of creation, he's going to be around until the end, why don't you back the winner? Why don't you trust the one who's won? The faithful and true. The Jesus who died on the cross, who rose again, is now risen and ascended and glorified. Back the winner, guys! Don't back Satan, the loser. Because by the time we get to the end of this week, you're going to learn that Satan is a massive loser. He is completely done. And Jesus remains on the throne. So don't back the loser. Don't let your life be sidetracked into to wickedness, to deceit, to, to lies and stealth and all the stuff you know, that you think you know best about. Don't back the loser. Back the winner. Because Jesus has won the victory. And that's, we always get it again. Please take time if you can over this week while it's fresh in your mind. Just to go through the letters. I've written it all out for you here. You can go through and you can see Jesus again in every letter. This is the words that you're hearing. Thirdly, we get reference to works. Now in Ephesus, we've done this already. You've had it read to you. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance... I know you can't tolerate wicked men that you've tested those who claim to be apostles and are not and you've found them out. You've persevered, you've endured hardships for my name. Now, John is saying here, uh, from Jesus as it were, that, that yeah, you've, you've been brilliant, you've been fantastic. It, it's an echo of chapter 1 verse 9 where John calls himself a companion in suffering. They've dealt with false teachers, there were plenty of them around about this time. They were action men. They'd done a terrific amount. The Ephesian church, Ephesus, that massive city. Quarter of a million people lived in Ephesus. I've been there. There's not a quarter of a million now. There's just a ruin now. And when I walked through it, I could just imagine all these Christians living in houses as you walked up the streets. And there would be side streets. And you could see, well, that's where all the Christians lived in Ephesus. Nobody lives there now. It's just a massive tourist attraction. But... And I find this one of the saddest words in the New Testament. Yet, Jesus is not afraid in his church to say, I have this against you. Now, many young people don't like this idea. This is what's called discipline. And, and as soon as you mention the word discipline, some people go, Ooh, don't, I don't, don't want to be disciplined. I didn't come on a house party to be disciplined. I don't like discipline. And some of you heard me say this at the Oaks before, so forgive me if I use the same corny line. 
But discipline is the same word as disciple. And if you don't want to be disciplined, then don't be a disciple of Jesus. I've had to endure discipline. I've had Jesus tell me off. I've had Jesus say, cut that out, Dave, for goodness sake. Discipline is part of being a disciple. 2 Timothy talks about a spirit of self-discipline. Sometimes we need to stop ourselves from doing things. But, but I have this against you. And this is discipline. I hold this against you. You've forsaken your first love. Now, let me tell you, I met my wife on a trampoline. Did you not know that? Some of you again have heard this. It's been an up and down relationship. I had to get that in somewhere. That's awful. Um, But I did. I met my wife on the trampoline. The first time I saw Heather was on a trampoline. She was going boing, boing, boing. I thought, whoa, she is drop dead gorgeous. And and I can't, I'm not ashamed of it. I'm really not. But I can remember what that felt like. I thought, whoa, she is the business. This this girl, you know. Sorry, am I going on about it too long? Can you cut that bit out of the uh, cut that bit out of the tape, guys, if you will? That'd be now that's how I felt. I remember my first love. I thought she is just, she's the only woman I'm sure that would put up with me for 45 years. Which she has done, bless her. Can you remember when you first became a believer? Can you remember that fantastic feeling when you moved from death to life? Jesus touched your life and you responded to his goodness and his grace and you said, yes, for me, I will serve the Lord. Can you remember that? You remember that moment? Maybe for you, like me, it wasn't a particular time. I can remember a time when I went to Cliff College, not a million miles from where any of you, and I hated it. I wanted to beat everybody up so it would be nice to me. Oh, lovely, Dave, lovely to see you. I said, come on, I want an argument. Come on. And I trusted Christ as my saviour somewhere in that summer. Never regretted it. But maybe you're here tonight and you're on autopilot. Do you know any plane that takes off? I found this out because I actually had a friend who was in on, he worked for EasyJet or something. Uh, and the plane goes up in the air. After one minute, they turn on the autopilot. And it stays on until one minute before you start, before you land. Uh, and the rest of the flight is not, you know, a pilot's out there going, like this. It's just flying on autopilot. It just goes up, levels out, goes down again. And they just sit there and check it's okay. Friends, if you're on autopilot and you're just cruising, that's not how God wanted you to be. You have lost your first love. You've lost that passion for Jesus. You've lost that longing to serve Jesus. You've lost that longing to see your mates at school become Christians. You've you've just lost that edge. And our world will never, ever be changed because your mum and dad are Christians. Our world will never be changed because you turn up every week. Our world will never be changed as long as you think the best thing you can do is to be like your mates. Our world will be changed... Because men and women, boys and girls, stand up for Jesus. My six-year-old grandson once went to school. And he was asked what he'd done for the weekend. Little tacker about this eye. And uh, somebody said to him, what have you been doing? He said, I've been on a Christian house party with my mum and dad. Boom! Some six-year-old mate thumped him. 
you stupid boy. Six years old. And Ben learnt in that moment that it could be costly to follow Jesus. Guys, we will never, ever change the world if we think that the way we'll do it will be to be like the people we're with. Now, I'm not saying you stick out like a sore thumb. I'm not saying you, you're deliberately awkward or nasty or, or cruel to other people. But I, I think I am saying this. That we've got to be different if we're going to see people changed. But if you go on to the last letter, it's even more shocking. It's going to get better, by the way. Sorry about this stuff. It's not easy to teach. Go on to Laodicea. Because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot. Oh, dear. Look what it says. Now, Laodicea had a stream running through it. Don't you know this? If you go to Turkey today, there's a, there's a tourist attraction called Pamukkale, which is hot springs. And these hot springs, once they've flown out of the, as it were, come out of the earth... They flow down through Laodicea. And as they flow down through Laodicea, they become, you got it, lukewarm. So if a Laodicean looked at the end of his road, he saw a lukewarm stream of water. And he also, if he looked around, he would see a proud city, famous for its black clothes, its dye. Famous for its salve for infected eyes, where you went to if you wanted your eyes sorted out and they were sore. You went to Laodicea to get salve on your eyes so that your eyes could be fit again. And what does Jesus say? You are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And you make me sick. Don't let the translation that you've got in front of you mask what it actually says. It says, you make me want to throw up in the original. Lukewarmness makes people sick. If you want to make someone sick, you make them drink tepid water, don't you? Jesus says, if you're lukewarm, you make me want to throw up. So there we go. Next one is the warning of consequences of unfaithfulness. Ephesus is told that the God will remove the lampstand. The church will cease to exist. And these briefly praised, yes, for their dealing with the Nicolaitans. They were, if you want to ask me about them, I'll deal with it with you. But it's, for, for Laodicea, the warning is clear. Materialism, greed have squeezed God out. That love of possession, that love of being a rich city. You know, we are the Laodiceans, guys. You know, don't you know us? Don't you ever, ever think we're Christchurch forward, my dears. Didn't you know? No arrogance allowed, I'm afraid, in God's economy. And think about how God's already done that. He's in control. He's made the world. He knows exactly what's going on in the world. And yet some of us still go our own ways, just like the Laodiceans did. And they become lukewarm. And God says, you make me sick. Fifth, encouragement to persevere. The great thing about God is that when he rebukes you, he always says something about how to remedy it. I'm going to stay with Revelation 3, the, the Laodicean letter, because I, I just love this. You, don't, you probably don't know this, but 
I'm sure Sue will know this, there's a very famous painting of this verse. Um, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Do you know about this? Have you ever heard about this before? Uh, and there's a painting, and there's the guy inside, and there's Jesus outside knocking on the door. But the door handle is only on one side. It's on the side of the guy, not on the side of Jesus. So when Jesus does that, you have got to grab the handle and open it and let him in. And I say to you guys this morning, behold, as Jesus says here in verse 20, I stand at the door and knock. But look before it in verse 19 with me. Those whom I love... I rebuke and discipline. Just to remind you of that, I want to do that because I want to shape you. I want to make you into someone who's more like Jesus. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be honest and repent. Say you're sorry to God and be determined to go in a different direction if your direction is away from God at the moment. But I stand at the door. I'm there. I'm I'm there. Please open up this week. Please open that door and let Jesus come into your life in fullness, in completeness. Let him deal with that habit. Let him deal with that dodgy relationship. Let him deal with that temper. Let him deal with that foul mouth. Let him deal with that problem you've got with a computer. Let him deal with the issues that you face in your life. He's standing there. Get your hand on that door handle and let him in. I stand, he says, at the door and knock. Let him in. And he goes on to talk about this encouragement to persevere. It's, it's, he wants to change us. He wants to shape us. He wants to do something that will change us into people who are passionate about Jesus. I, I had some dealings not long ago with um, um, a strange... No, he's not a strange man, that's not fair. Uh, an interesting man, we'll call him J. John. Uh, he's, a, he's an interesting character by any stretch of the imagination. He does various things around the country. And, uh, and, and he, he walks, he, every time he walks in... Um, I remember this so vividly. We worked for him for ten weeks in, in Winchester, where I, I served. And, and every time J. John came in, he... Uh, he'd say something, to, he'd greet you, give you this big hug. He's only a little guy about this high. And he'd give you this big hug and he said, tell me something exciting about Jesus. What's happened to you this week? And there'd be a big cheesy grin all over his face. Uh, and I, I loved that. As if to say there's, there's something fresh and, and new that, that, that Jesus has done in your life this week, this, this house party, this time. And let's share those things together in our group times. We've, I think three times already this house party, somebody said, let's rejoice in something. Let's, let's thank God for something. Oh, do become thankful Christians, won't you? Don't become misery guts who moan all the time. And I must just wrap this up very quickly because time is going. Promise, sixthly, to all who overcome. Now, you can get that if you look at it with me. Um, Verse 21 of chapter 3, to him who overcomes, just flip back to chapter 2, he says the same sort of thing. But we'll stay with 3, I think, because it helps us more. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. 
just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And that's, yeah, let's do the Ephesus one as well, right at the end of 7, chapter 2. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, very, very quickly, just imagine, just, just imagine with me, will you, uh, that you're going to meet uh, the gladiatorial arena. You're, you're going into that, that place, you know, where you're going to get worked over. I wonder what goes through your, bra- your brain. When you're picked up and you're put in prison for your faith, when you're dumped on Patmos for however many years, what are you thinking? Wasn't I an idiot to ever commit to being a Christian? What a stupid thing. Look at the rubbish it's ending me up in. Or were you thinking to him who overcomes? That's you. You may die. You may lose your freedom. But to those who overcome, to those who keep going, to those who say, I will strive as best I can to serve God. I once knew a man. He was called Albert Falaise. I bet you've never heard of him. He ministered in a North African country for 50 years. Faithful gospel ministry. He preached. He taught in the marketplace. He saw in 50 years two conversions. Two conversions. Since he's died, there is now a church in that town of 200 believers. Albert never saw that. Albert is rejoicing. (coughs) Word with the saints. Thank you. That's where he's rejoicing. And because of that man's faithful witness to the end, He was a dear, dear man. There was not a hint of bitterness in his life. He was a beautiful man in every way. My friends, to him who overcomes will be given the privilege of being with Christ in his heaven forever. Back the winner, guys. Back the winner. And very finally... Listen up. Every letter finishes in the same way. You know it as well as I do. Many of you have read this before. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you know what I worry about more than anything else? Is that some of you go out of here this morning and say, nice talk, it's all right. The old fellow's not too bad. Can put up with him possibly for a week, but not much longer. You know, all that kind of stuff. And and Satan would love, you know what Satan would love to do more than anything else in the world? Is to take away from anything that God has said through his word this morning and say, no, don't listen to that stuff. That's what Satan would love to do. And that's why at the end of every letter is this little phrase, if you've got ears, listen. Listen up. God has something to say to you this week, I believe. And so that's what God loves in the church. Read it for yourself. 
He loves those who are faithful and true, who persevere, who love Jesus, who maintain their first love, who keep going, who want to serve, who don't give up, who don't tolerate false teachers, who keep going. It's all there in those two chapters with all the letters. I haven't had time to deal with it all this morning. That's what he loves. And he loves you too. And wants to shape you into somebody who's more like his son. Shall we pray for that? Let's bow our heads. Thank you so much, Lord, that at the start of each of these letters we have a picture of Jesus. And I believe some of us here are struggling with that this morning. We've lost that. And I so believe that some of us have lost that first love and we truly are lukewarm. We're cold. We're just not there. Oh, please, Lord, convince us by the power of your Spirit that you stand and you knock at the door of our lives and you long for us to open it up and let you in. And we may think we're not good enough. We're dead right. We're not. We may think we don't deserve it. We're dead right. We don't. But it's all of grace. Because he loves us unconditionally for who we are and wants to deal with our lives as they are now. Please, Lord, help us to open up to the truth and reality, to listen up to what the Spirit is saying to the church, to us, to his people. And to respond in humility and love to the love that's been shown to us. We pray it for his glory and the growth of his church, that many more may come to know because of this house party, way beyond these people here, many people may come to know the living Christ. We pray it for his glory. Amen. Oh, it's on the back of